Egypt is the only country other than Israel which technically borders with Gaza. This makes the Egyptian area of Al Arish at the front line, witnessing what is unfolding across the border in Rafah. Tensions are high as Israeli officials say that they will launch a ground offensive before Ramadan if the hostages aren't released. This means that the lives of half of Gaza's 2.3 million residents seeking refuge now in Gaza's Rafah hang in the balance. The UN has starkly warned against an invasion, fearing a humanitarian catastrophe that could increase the already dire death toll. But now, Every action from Israel in Rafah will be reverberated across the borders, especially in Egypt. The country's foremost concerns revolve around the possibility of Palestinians attempting to breach Gaza's border into the Sinai when Israel's campaign intensifies. This would put broader complications on Egypt's security and regional stability. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Inas Rafari, and in this week's episode, we're looking at Egypt as it navigates a complex landscape balancing humanitarian concerns with geopolitical realities. There's been satellite footage circulating which appears to show the construction of a concrete wall near the Gaza border, which Egyptian officials have denied. During the Nationals' recent reporting from the Rafah border crossing last week, North Sinai Governor Mohammed Fadil Shusha said the zone was meant for widening the waiting area for lorries, storage space for aid shipments, and to provide places for lorry drivers to sleep while they're waiting to cross into Rafah. But if the Israelis press on with the ground invasion of Rafah and force the displacement of Palestinians into Egyptian territory, Egypt would find itself in a complicated situation with Israel potentially jeopardising the long-standing peace treaty. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Hassisi has voiced concerns about potential militant infiltration and the subsequent security implications for both Egypt and Israel. What complicates the situation even more is that Israel is unlikely to allow the Palestinians to return to Gaza, and this would be a similar situation to the time of Israel's creation in 1948, when around 700,000 Palestinians fled and were forced to leave their homes. Joining me now is Ismail Naar, our Arab Affairs Editor here at The National. He just got back from there and described the situation at the border. Ismail, so you've just returned from covering the Rafah border in Egypt's Al-Arish. Tell us what you saw. Thanks, Inas. Yeah, I was on the ground on the border city of Al-Arish in Egypt and the Rafah border crossing itself. I was embedded with the Emirati Red Crescent for the past two weeks or so. Honestly, yeah, things look very dire even from the Egyptian border side. During the 12 days or so that we were on the ground, the border crossing itself, I think, probably opened three or four times. And during those short hours that they were opened, there was just a trickle of eight trucks that were able to cross. We're talking about hundreds of trucks just dotting the lines into the Rafah crossing, just waiting for days now, even some of them for weeks, to cross into the border. So is this something that Egypt can control? Why don't they just simply open the border fully with Rafah? That exact narrative has been a question a lot of people have been asking in recent weeks. Egypt has emphasised time and time again that it does not want Palestinians to be displaced from their land by Israel. A lot of comparisons are being made to the 1948 Nakba which uh, is an Arabic word for the forced displacement of about 700,000 Palestinians from their homes during that war in 1948. 
and that led to the creation of the Israeli state. A lot of those 750,000 people have not been able to go back into their homes in Palestine. So say that Egypt has the capacity to resettle also more than a million of the Palestinians right now at the Rafah border and allow them into the Sinai, what guarantees could be given to those Palestinians that they can return to their homes in Gaza once this war ends? Again, most of their homes have been destroyed. It's been obliterated. It's been turned into rubble. A lot of them may be crossing into Egypt without proper paperwork. So yes, if it does open the borders and allows them to settle into the, the Sinai, we're talking not just weeks, maybe years that they will be forced to live in refugee camps. And that's a scenario Egypt and the rest of the Arab world has emphasized should not take place. So what about the reports then that Gaza is building this military wall? I know they gave you some reasons behind that. But while you were there in Al-Arish, did you hear anything else or find out anything more? So we were able to report from the zone itself. It's quite evident once you land in Al-Arish that uh, Egypt was boosting its security presence at its border with Gaza, given that they've been threatening to invade Rafah. Israel has said it will military send tanks and soldiers to fight a ground invasion. So if that happens, the Palestinians there would like then be forced into Al-Arish. And this buffer zone that... Egypt is apparently creating is a 3.5 kilometer stretch Mm -hmm. of land. So explain to me a little bit more about what they think this buffer zone will provide for Egyptian authorities. So for Egyptian authorities, they've said that they don't plan on creating refugee camps in this buffer zone. That's not the narrative that they want to say, even though like satellite images and even the things that we've seen on the ground may prove otherwise. I spoke to the Egyptian North Sinai governor, Mohammed Fadal Shusha. He refuted it outright and said that they're creating that land, that buffer zone, so that they could create a system in place for the lorries, the hundreds of thousands of trucks carrying aid, and even administrative offices and places for these truck drivers to sleep in. Again, Arish has been turned into this humanitarian aid zone, basically, where there isn't a system and logistics in place, and that he's told me that the zone is catered towards that. But again, both could be true. So explain to me a bit more. So Israel has said that it wants to take over and secure this corridor of land between Gaza and Egypt. What's Egypt's reaction to this kind of threat? To give you a bit of context, it's called the Philadelphia Corridor. It's 14 kilometers long strip of land that represents the entirety of the border between Gaza and Egypt. Its purpose at that time, when it was created in 1979, between the Treaty of Israel and Egypt, was to stop the weapons and materials from reaching the hands of Palestinians inside of Gaza, which at that time Israel was occupying. Uh, And then in 2005, when Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip and control was then given to Hamas, that area specifically signified the only link with the outside world for Gazans, because again, Israel controls the north of the border, Egypt to the south. An agreement after the Israeli disengagement from the area in 2005 allowed Egypt to deploy soldiers and heavy arms to patrol and safeguard the Egyptian side of that border, with the responsibility on the other side being given to the Palestinian Authority, and then eventually Hamas when they came into power. But over the years, Egypt said it kept destroying these tunnels, basically, that were dug up from Arish into Gaza. Israel has doubted the effectiveness of those claims by Egypt. And it says the only way to eliminate Hamas at this point are those tunnels, are those corridors that Egypt controls now. 
Did you see any tunnels or anything when you went to the border? No. I mean, Israel has claimed that it was able to bomb and destroy all those tunnels. Again, Arish is a very dense populated area. Egypt's trying to control those areas right now. But none that we saw when we were on the ground. It's a really complicated piece of land, which really is like in the center of this conflict. What I think is like really difficult for a lot of people to understand is how Egypt has this border, yet a lot of what goes in is still controlled by Israel. That's exactly true. I mean, again, for aid to even cross from the Egyptian side, Israel has stipulated that it needs to check those aid, inspect those aids. So we're talking about maybe they're checking up to 50, maybe 100 trucks a week. And that's still a drop in the ocean. It's just a fraction of the aid that's needed. So that is done at the Kerem Shalom entry point, a border crossing point that's between Egypt, Israel, and Gaza. So trucks do have to drive up to 20 kilometers to that crossing, then drive back to Larish. So that whole journey takes about 80 to 100 kilometers worth of driving. So you could imagine the slow pace that is needed. And did you see many humanitarian aid struggling to get into Gaza? Oh, 100%. I mean, at one point I was calculating, I was staying at an accommodation probably I would say 40 kilometers away from the Rafah crossing itself. And in those 40 kilometers, it's just you're seeing hundreds of lines of trucks and truck drivers just sleeping out in the open, camping out. Once even they do get confirmation that their truck, their lorry could go into Gaza, that's another eight days of just camping out at the border waiting for inspections to be done and then for the crossing itself to be reopened and then drive into Gaza. And that's a whole different journey on its own. And this is putting extra pressure on Egypt because Egypt has been playing a very tumultuous relationship here with its neighbouring country. And they have long been mediators in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What do we think Egypt's position, is it going to be affected by all of this? I mean, our colleagues in our Cairo, Hamza Hindawi and Kamal Tapiqa have been wonderfully reporting on this, extensively reporting on this issue for the past several months. You know, Egypt doesn't just have a huge stake in this war as a mediator, given its position uh, as a border country. We're talking about economically, it, it's being affected by different factors. One example is that the attacks by the, the Yemen Houthi rebels and the Red Sea shipping, that's cut Egypt's revenue from the Suez Canal in January by more than 50% compared to last year. More than 50%. You know, economically, that means key food items such as sugar, rice, milk, they're either now in short supply or their prices have skyrocketed just because of the war in Gaza and what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. This has compounded the everyday Egyptians' standing right now, especially with inflation, the economic woes. In terms of politically, Egypt has also successfully mediated truces to end wars between you know, Israel and Hamas in the past. It's been trying to do that. Its last successful mediation came with the Qataris in November. And since then, it's been trying its hand over and over again. But any talks on a ceasefire and what Egypt can make guarantees when it comes to its side of the border, it's trying its best. But, you know, in recent weeks, especially with Ramadan around the corner, a final long-term ceasefire deal is what it's trying to achieve instead of a short-term truce. To understand Egypt's predicament more, I invited Michael Hanna, the programme director for the International Crisis Group in New York, to explain the nuances in navigating this space. 
Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me. Just thinking about Israel and its potential to launch a ground offensive, what do we suspect Egypt's position will be on this? Well, Egypt has been very clear, I think, from the start of the war in Gaza about the potential spillover into Egypt. And the thing that it is perhaps most fearful of, for a variety of reasons, both self-interested and uh, about the broader issue of Palestine, is displacement into Egypt. And of course, the specter of a military offensive in Rafah really puts this in stark light, because there are so many people in and around Rafah, maybe 1.2, 1.3 million people now, uh, including many displaced from other parts of Gaza, that there's simply nowhere for people to go. And so the pressure on Egypt would be immense in such a scenario. And so that is really top of mind for Egyptian officials. And they've obviously made their views well known to both Israel, the United States and others. So do you think it's mainly an economical issue to why they wouldn't take in so many Gazans? It's not just. It's a pretty complicated set of motivations. I mean, obviously, Egypt would not be very excited about the burden. Yeah, that's true. It is already hosting a wave of refugees that came in on the southern border from Sudan as a result of that civil war. It is in a very delicate economic moment, and the inflationary pressures are quite severe. So that's all true, uh, but there's a whole other set of reasons. And some of that is bound up with Egypt's own security. There are fears about what a massive influx of displaced from Gaza into northern Sinai would do to Egypt's security dynamics. It's been a site of long-standing unrest and low-level insurgency. And there would be fears that some of the cross-border connections that have existed in years past might reignite the fighting in Egypt. There are fears about possibility that Palestinian militancy would simply shift its focus and that would invite attacks directly on the Egyptian soil from Israel. Then finally, there, there is a principle behind this, and that is the fear that displacement, as in past chapters of Palestinian history, becomes permanent. And that if Palestinians are forced out of Gaza, they will not be allowed to return. And it would effectively be one more step towards the liquidation of the Palestinian cause. Uh, so it's a complicated set of motivations, some self-interested and some, I would say, principled. I think complicated puts it quite lightly when we look at the situation. But I just wanted to take something that you said about the huge displacement. We have seen mass displacement in the region from Syria. It's a recent war that we've seen that from. Do we think that there'll be mirrored examples of this in the Middle East that we can take knowledge from or kind of understanding? Well, I mean, there are very recent examples of displacement. You mentioned the Syrian civil war. Obviously, millions of Syrians have been displaced and effectively exiled. I think the situation that is top of mind for many is are the previous waves of Palestinian displacement and the ways in which displacement has figured very prominently in, in Palestinian history, starting in 1948, but not only. I mean, of course, many of the Gazans themselves are either 48 refugees or their descendants. And so displacement is top of mind in Palestinian history. And I, and I think for many Palestinians and 
in the first instance in the early phases of the war, many Palestinians in Gaza were insistent that they would never leave, that they understood the stakes, that they understood what had happened to previous generations and what that might mean going forward. And of course, as the war uh, has continued, as the death toll has uh, skyrocketed, as deprivation uh, is such that we are now collectively concerned about uh, famine and starvation, I think it, it will it, it is inevitable that that Palestinians in Gaza will will reconsider. And that that means that in, in some sense, there will likely be demographic change at the end of this war. When Gazans look at their material situation, look at the state uh, of the strip, and think about their future lives, I'm afraid that, and it's very understandable, that many will, many Gazans will choose to leave if they have the means to do so. And this is, of course, happening at the moment because there are Palestinians who are managing to leave and get into Egypt. Do you know anything about the numbers and where they've been going? We don't know. It is it is happening through unofficial channels, effectively, and it is not it is not so far a huge number, but it is a number. People who have the means are beginning to pay their way effectively through. It's a complicated, expensive, time-consuming process. Obviously, that means that many people don't have the means to do so. But it is indicative of the situation on the Gazan side and the fact that Palestinians with means thinking about their future may very reasonably opt to try to go. And so there's, I think we haven't gotten to the stage to think about the day after because everybody is very focused on the ongoing war and the need for a ceasefire. But I think it will be something of a shock to see the extent of the destruction in Gaza. In a real sense, Gazan society in many places is gone. The institutions and structures that can sustain a society are simply no longer there. And that is something that Palestinians and the region and others are going to have to contend with. It might not be a place that can really sustain Palestinian life in the future. I think there's no question that there has been economic spillover. And as you mentioned, Egypt, even before October 7th, was in a very difficult economic situation, huge pressure on foreign reserves, massive foreign debt, and very serious inflation. And obviously that continues. There has been a hit to tourism. Now, with what is happening with the Houthis in the Red Sea, there has been a further economic spillover in terms of traffic through the Suez Canal. And so this conflict is absolutely making a very shaky economic situation worse. I would say it has also created some flexibility in terms of how outside players are looking at Egypt's economy, whether that's the IMF or the United States and Europeans and other regional parties. I think concern about Egyptian stability in this context has created a slightly different and uh, more flexible uh, approach to economic reform and economic assistance. Uh, I think we're very likely to see uh, a much bigger IMF uh, package 
that likely has less stringent demands in terms of what it is asking of Egypt in terms of economic reform. Are we seeing the effects of this immediately on the people? Like when we talk about the Houthis, and it seems like such a long list of things that are damaging the economy in Egypt. What are the instant effects that we are seeing on the ground? Yeah, I mean, inflation, unemployment. I mean, this is not a uh, this is not a healthy economy, and of course, these geopolitical developments may seem distant, but the very dire economic realities that face Egyptians on a day to day basis are very real and immediate. And this is obviously something that cannot, in a sense, be overshadowed for those living through it. So it is, it's a long-standing deteriorating economic crisis and i think egypt has huge interests in trying to see the immediate military conflict come to an end there's also a political implication which has a ripple effect from what is happening what do you think of the effect this is going to have on egypt's position that it's had for years as a mediator between the israelis and the palestinians Yeah, I mean, it's, again, assumed this very traditional role. It is doing so in concert with Qatar, which has close diplomatic links with Hamas uh, by virtue of their Hamas political office being in Doha. And that Qatar-Egypt relationship has its own set of challenges, but is on much firmer footing in recent years. And In a sense, there's no way around Egypt when it comes to the issue of Gaza. I think Egypt itself has shifted its approach to Hamas. If you go back in the very early stages of Sisi's ascendancy to power, when anti-brotherhood and anti-Islamist sentiment was on the ascendance, that, that viewpoint infused the way in which Egypt dealt with Hamas. Very hard line. And we've seen a more pragmatic shift to engage Hamas out of self-interest, uh, out of a sense that Egypt needed good relations with Hamas in in terms of functional diplomatic channels and contact to manage its own security. This is a border issue for, for Egypt. And so it rebuilt many of those, those links in. And of course, in any setting like the one we, we see now, that means that Egypt, by dint of these ties and by dint of geography, is going to play an important role in any kind of negotiations that involve Hamas. If we look at geographically where Egypt sits, we have Libya, Sudan, Gaza. It's in a bit of a tight situation with ongoing wars. Is there anything happening at the Sudanese border as well that is adding pressure on the Egyptian position? Yeah, I mean, there has been a flow of refugees from Sudan into Egypt. Uh, Egypt has real interests in stability in Sudan and is quite concerned about, about the civil war and the role of the RSF, which is, has been at times militarily ascendant in recent months. And of course, you mentioned this bigger regional picture, and it's, it is one of instability all along Egypt's borders. Shockingly, the the Libyan border may be the most tranquil at the moment. And obviously, it's not a border that has been tranquil because of of the longstanding conflict in Libya since the fall of Kazefi. The prospect of instability is all around. And that obviously has an impact on how Egypt understands its position and understands the region. 
And slightly further afield, Egypt thinks about about the Horn of Africa, increasing geopolitical competition. There is its own longstanding and unresolved conflict with Ethiopia about about the Grand Renaissance Dam. And so there are a variety of concerns that are fueling Egypt's sense of insecurity about this current moment. So could Egypt survive this? Could it survive this? Yeah, I mean, I I guess we're going to know the answer to that question. I do think that no one has an interest in seeing sort of a major economic collapse in Egypt. And so in a very extreme scenario, I do think that in a sense, and we hear this often when we when people talk about Egypt and its economy, that Egypt might be too big to fail in the sense that outside actors might not be willing to, to test that uh, out in real life. Uh, and uh, there, there might be scenarios whereby outside players, uh, whether that's in the region or beyond, um, would step in to try to, to ease that kind of worst case scenario. Thanks to our guest Ismail Naar and Michael Hanna. For more information on the current conflict in the region, please subscribe to every episode of Beyond the Headlines and follow our coverage at www.thenationalnews.com. This episode was produced by Daat Farid and Arthur Edison, and I've been your host, Inas Rafai.